Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We are continuing a study through the Gospel of John. Today we come to the middle of chapter 8. I'll begin the reading in verse 12 and read through verse 30. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, if you, you know neither me nor my father, if you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed him, believed in him. I'd like to begin today with a review of a third grade science lesson. So if you are getting a doctorate in science or have a doctorate in science, bear with me. I'm Very simple terms. I just want to talk about how the eyeball works. The eyeball is an amazing thing. It really is. How we see things in the physical world. First of all, the sun shines and the beams of light bounce off of objects all around us. And those light beams, they bounce off of objects, they come into the light, they penetrate the eyeball through this clear window that covers it, called the cornea, And that light then comes through a hole in the front of the eye called the pupil. And that pupil is surrounded by the iris, and the iris actually gets larger and smaller without us 
even thinking about it, it gets larger and smaller to let, them, let the, just the right amount of light into the eye. Once it's passed through that pupil, that hole in the eye, it passes through a lens in the eye. And that lens is surrounded by muscles so that those muscles actually either stretch that lens to make it thinner or co- con, you know, compact that lens to make it thicker so that the light that's bringing this image, that's bouncing off the objects around you, this light, so that that will be focused exactly in the right way in a very defined image, just in the right place, which is on the back of the eyeball. After it passes through the liquid, it goes and hits the back of the eyeball, and that's where the most amazing part of the eye is. Because in the back, it's covered with what we call the retina. And that retina is made up of little photosensors. There are rods, what they call rods and cones, in the retina. The rods, there's 120 million rods in one retina. And those rods take that information from that image, from those light beams that are, that are focused on the retina. It takes and interprets in black and white data, it interprets the shape and, and, and the motion of the objects around us. And then the cones, which are 7 million of those, they actually then paint in to add to that data all the color and the fine detail. So now you have the data from this image that's reflected on the back of the eyeball. That is transmitted through the optic nerve with a chemical reaction which creates this electrical signal, transmits this data to the brain, and the brain then takes all this data and it uh, interprets it It flips the image. Of course, when it's on the retina, it's upside down. So it flips the image right side up and then combines that data with the data from the other eye and coordinates it so you have depth perception and all that so that you have this final clear image of everything around you so that you can interact with the world. Praise the Lord, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I think that we are so, in this era, we are so full of ourselves because we have been able to, with great precision, study the processes of how this works to such, you know, at the microscopic level, we're able to to know in detail far more than any of our forefathers did exactly how these processes work, that we have lost that sense of childlike awe and wonder at how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. Just because we can see and, and describe how the process works doesn't mean we figured it out any more than, than the, the most primitive peoples. We should be amazed at the testimony to the glory of God that is reflected in just our eyeball, let alone our entire body, let alone the entire created world, let alone the universe. Why then, if this is so obvious, if this is so amazing and so easily visible to our physical senses, why are there so many in the world who either don't believe in the existence of the Creator or they may say that they believe in the existence of the Creator but then live their lives as though it doesn't really matter whether He exists or not? How can this be? Well, God's Word tells us why. Very important point that Paul makes in the beginning of the book of Romans. You've heard it before. Let me read it to you again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's why, even though our physical eyes, as we were born into this world, work well, we still cannot see our Creator in what He has made. His divine attributes and His divine power, Paul says, are clearly seen in the complexity and the beauty and the harmony of everything He has made in this universe. And yet, we are blind to Him. And the problem is not with our senses, it's not with our eyes, it's not with our ears, it's not with our brains. The problem is in our hearts. Our hearts are darkened. We are spiritually dead as we're born into this world. Unresponsive to the truth that's so obvious around us. Our foolish hearts are darkened. You see, the problem is, even though all of our physical organs and, and, and facilities work well, in order for us to know something, we ought, we ought not only take in data from the world around us and make observations and think about it, but all that data has to pass through our soul. And our souls are darkened by sin. All the evidence is distorted and ultimately denied. Understanding this dynamic, understanding this helps us to understand what Jesus meant when he stood in the court of the temple on that day that is recorded there in John 8 and said, declared to all who could hear him, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It helps us to understand why the Pharisees and why vast majority of the Jews who were there that day and who were there in Jerusalem and who were living in the days of his ministry, how they could see the abundant evidence for who Jesus Christ really was and yet reject him. I mean, understand, these were churched people. These were leaders of the church of that day. They were people who regularly involved in the church of that day. As Paul says, theirs was the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. How could they not see that Jesus was truly the light of the world? How could they not bow before Him and acknowledge Him as Lord and Messiah? But we see in this passage, as He makes that announcement, it's the churched people who are standing around Him and refusing to accept it. They ask him a bunch of questions, but understand that the tone under each one of these questions that they ask in this passage we just, just read is a cynical tone. And a key question they ask, which really reveals their heart, is in verse 24 where it says, Who are you? Who are you? Even after all they had seen, after all they had heard, they're still in the dark, spiritually speaking. So what causes this spiritual blindness? Because we still see it. We see it in ourselves still to some degree, but we certainly see it in the world around us. What causes the spiritual blindness? Let me just stop for a second to talk about this phrase that Jesus used because it has such a rich biblical background to it. 
Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And by, when he says that, he's drawing upon a well-known Old Testament symbol, a well-known Old Testament metaphor. The light and the darkness goes all the way back to creation. But think about, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about the Feast of Tabernacles because that is what, that's the religious feast of the Jews that had just happened. Where all the Jews descended upon Jerusalem for seven days to celebrate, particularly, as we said, to celebrate God's watching over them and providing for them and leading them through the wilderness when he led them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And as they celebrated, they built their, their own little booths, their little tents, and they, they gathered together to worship God. One of the rituals of that week was often, uh, we don't realize this, we talked about the ritual with the pouring out of the water a couple weeks ago. One of the other rituals is they, would, they had these what they, menorahs, very large versions of the menorahs, these lamps. They're actually 75 feet tall that they built, and they put these large lamp stands out in the outer courts of the temple. There were four of them. And on the first day of the feast, they would light these lamps, and all four of them would burn, and they would burn all week, all seven days of the feast. And at night, the priests and all the people would gather around these lamps, the light, and just in the darkness of the night, they would, they would enjoy the light, and they would sing psalms, and they would dance and praise God. And that was a, a very uh, well-loved ritual during that week. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles had just finished, and the lamps had been extinguished in the outer courts. And now Jesus stands up among the people and says, I am the light of the world. You know, when you think about what led those people through the wilderness... It was that pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud during the day. And so as they danced and sang and praised God around those great lamps, they were remembering and rejoicing in how God provided for his people, how he was in the midst of his people. And Jesus is drawing upon that symbolism and saying, I am the light of the world. Later on, when the prophet Isaiah was sent to talk about the coming messianic kingdom, that God was going to bring a kingdom and he was going to send a king to establish that kingdom when sin would be dealt with once and for all and sin would be taken away and God would dwell among his people and his people would see him face to face. And listen to the language. We read the first three verses. Tom read the first three verses at the beginning of our service. I want to read those for you again and then skip down to the end of the chapter. This is Isaiah 60 beginning in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The coming of the Messianic Kingdom and the coming of the Messiah would be like a great light dawning in the midst of a very deep darkness. And then let me skip down to the end, verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, go, shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. You shall all be righteous, they shall all possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. It was to be a kingdom of light. 
all celebrating the light, which is the presence of God in the midst of God's people. And so you think of light and all the biblical imagery, all the symbolism of it. Light in Scripture represents truth. It represents holiness. It represents wisdom and life and peace and joy and love. It really represents God, doesn't it? It's all, the attri- all those things I listed are attributes of the one true God. And so light represents the shining forth, the radiation of those characters, characteristics of God, those attributes of God. When we talk about the glory of God, that's what we're talking about. The shining forth of the attributes of God. Of course, then what's darkness? Darkness is the absence of those things. Instead of truth, you have lies and ignorance. Instead of good, you have evil. Instead of righteousness, you have sin. Instead of wisdom, you have foolishness. Instead of love, you have hatred. Instead of life, you have death. Instead of heaven, you have hell. And that's what darkness represents in Scripture. And so with that in the background... Let me take you back to John chapter 1. Remember when John introduced this gospel? He wants to introduce us to this Christ who came and dwelt among us. And this is what he says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You hear what John's saying? This light, the light that the pillar of fire represented, the light that Isaiah talked about that would bring the Messianic kingdom, this light has come because the Word who was with God before the world was was created has now become flesh and dwelt among us. The light has dawned. And that's what Jesus is claiming when he says, I am the light of the world. The writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in chapter 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is the light of the world. But we're struck again as we look at the rest of John 8. Having said that, these Jewish leaders, these church leaders, and these church people reject His claim. And I don't think that they're really objecting to him saying, I have come to bring light, in other words, to bring truth or to bring love. They weren't objecting to that so much as that he was claiming to be the light. He was claiming to be the source of truth and holiness and peace and joy and life. They were blind to who he truly was. What was the cause of that blindness? First of all, the cause was their worldly perspective. Look at verse 13. They were looking at Jesus in the flesh. And this is what he says in verse 13. The Pharisees said to Jesus, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. We alluded to this the last couple of weeks, that in, Jewish, in the Old Testament law, just it's very similar in our law, you have to have two or three witnesses in order, you know, in a court of law, you have to have two or three witnesses to establish the truth of a claim or a truth of a, of a testimony. And that makes sense. And so... They were saying to Jesus, you're making this claim about yourself, but your claim is invalid. It doesn't meet the standard. It doesn't have at least two witnesses. And we can empathize with that. I mean, if, let's say, Bill Gates were to die tomorrow and I were to show up 
in the court and stand before the judge and say, I am an heir of Bill Gates, I shouldn't expect the judge to say, hey, if you say so, let me write you out a check here and give me my share of his inheritance. It wouldn't work that way. We expect verification of testimony. We expect other witnesses. You can't just claim something for yourself. Jesus, it's interesting, you notice how Jesus responds to that. His first response is very surprising. In verse 14 he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. Do you hear what he's saying? I tell you the truth and I don't need someone to stand alongside of me and give verification to that claim. Because I know where I came from. Eternity passed in the very presence of God. And I know where I'm going. I'm ascending to the right hand of God again as King, over King, King of kings and the Lord of lords. I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. I don't need the testimony of man. Remember that back in chapter 2. I don't need the testimony of man. What I tell you is the truth. And what he's saying is the real problem here is not that I don't have enough witnesses or people to back me up on this. The problem is that you are judging me according to the flesh. You are looking at me and you only have physical eyes and you're only using the data that your physical eyes is give, are giving you to decide who I am. Basically, they looked at Jesus and they saw another fallen sinner like themselves. They saw a backwoods carpenter who fancied himself a preacher. Somebody who needed to be put in his place. They didn't know where he came from and they didn't know where he was going. And what he's saying to them is if you really knew who I was, you would understand that the laws of the courtroom don't really apply here. The whole reason we have laws, the whole reason we have courts, the whole reason we have judges, the whole reason we have laws is because we're sinners. People are liars. That's why the testimony of one man is not sufficient. If there was a perfect man and he gave testimony, then we could accept what he says at face value and fully trust him because he was perfect. He would not deceive. He would not sin. And think about it. If Jesus were to go up to the witness stand and to give testimony to something, wouldn't it be silly for him to say, I swear to God that what I'm about to tell you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? He is God. What would he say? I swear by myself that what I'm about to tell you is true? And that's literally what he's saying here. Matter of fact, there's an interesting verse in Hebrews, 6, Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, God makes promises and we can trust God's promises not because he has people to verify his promise, but because God is God. And he says it in this way, Hebrews 6 verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you for it. And he goes on later to say, It is impossible for God to lie. That's what Jesus is saying here. I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. I know who I am. If you really knew who I was, you wouldn't need somebody to stand alongside of me and verify my words. Jesus says the problem is you judge according to the flesh. They had no spiritual eyesight to perceive spiritual truth. Peter received that spiritual eyesight. Remember, Peter was the first of the apostles 
to make a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Messiah. He says in Matthew 16, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember how Jesus replied to that? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, you can't see who Jesus is in the flesh. If you only have your fallen nature and your physical senses, you cannot see who Jesus is. You need to be able to see him by faith. And that's a gift from the Father. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it really true, even for those of us who have had spiritual eyesight given to us by God's grace, our eyes have been opened to see who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah. Isn't it so often the case that our downfall, when we fall into sin, when we fall into depression, when we fall into hard times, it's because we are judging according to the flesh. We are looking at the world from a worldly perspective. We are looking at it as though we are from below and not from above like Christ. And we're living and valuing things by the world's criteria, judging according to the flesh. Christ gives us a way to go far beyond what perception the flesh can give. He says, instead of judging according to the flesh, we need the gift of faith. So, that's the first reason they didn't believe. The second reason that the unbelieving Jews were blinded is because of their alienation from the Father. You notice he goes on in verse 17, he basically accommodates to their thinking. He says, okay, I don't need another witness, but I can give you one. Listen to what he says in verse 17. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. God the Father gave witness to who Jesus Christ is. He has another witness. He's speaking of the Trinity here. God the Father stands with him and gives testimony to who he is, and they don't hear his testimony, they don't accept his testimony either. Matter of fact, you know, the Pharisees say, where is your father? And later the text says they didn't understand that he was talking about, they still, they, they had no clue about the unique sonship of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says to them there, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You're alienated from the Father. You churched people, you church leaders, you think you know God, you're very religious, but you don't really know God. Because if you knew God, then you would understand that He is giving testimony to who I am and you need to believe His testimony. There was plenty of testimony from the Father as to the identity of the Son if the Jews had the ability to see it. He fulfilled the Old Testament law in his sinlessness. He was a walking, breathing, living example of what the law of Moses taught. He kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled all the symbolism of the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and the kingship and the sacrifices and the cleansing rituals. He fulfilled all of that, a testimony from the Father. He fulfilled all of the intricate, the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of the, of the prophets of the Old Testament. He fulfilled every one of them. And that's a testimony of the Father. He performed miracles, which were a testimony from the Father as to who He was and His authority. And there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. There were many Many evidences 
from the Father as to who Jesus Christ was, but they were spiritually blind, alienated from the Father. They didn't know the Father, so they couldn't hear the Father's voice either. And that brings me to the third reason that they were blind to the truth of who Jesus was. They were blinded by their sins. Look at verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. They loved their sins. That's what John says back in chapter 3. You remember that passage? Beginning of verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. See, that's a very important element in spiritual blindness to understand. It's not just that you are alienated from God and don't know God the Father. It's not just that you are thinking and judging things in the flesh but it's that you love sin. You're born with a nature that loves sin and will not let go of sin. The real reason that these people rejected Jesus, at the heart of it, is that they loved the darkness rather than the light. And they didn't want their sins exposed. Understand that about everyone around you who will not come to Christ, who will not believe the gospel, will not believe who he is and what he came to do, that at the core of it, there is an agenda in their rejection of Christ. And that agenda is that they love their sin. Now they may give you very respectable, rational, intellectual defenses for their philosophy, for their religion, for their rejection of Christ and the claims that the scriptures give to Christ. They may give all that. But understand, even though they'll never admit it, very few of them will admit it, at the core of their agenda in rejecting Christ is that they love sin. They love it. They live for it. They feed upon it. And such were you and I at one time. Don't look down your nose at them. That's how we were born into this world too, and that's where we would be, except for the grace of God. And that's where, as we wrap things up, Jesus points to the cure for all this. There is a cure for spiritual blindness, and Jesus points to it at the end of this passage. There's a cure for worldliness and a fleshly perspective. There's a cure for alienation from God. And there's a cure for the love of sin. And it's in verse 28. He says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Hear what he's saying there? That language, when He is lifted up, He uses that over and over in the Gospel of John. When He's lifted up, speaking of the cross. He says, When I'm nailed to the cross, and you see what happens there, as he dies for the sins of God's people, and as he's raised from the dead, and having been raised from the dead, as he ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, that is complete vindication for Jesus Christ. The ultimate witness of the Father and the Spirit to who the Son is and the success of his mission and the eternal glory that he was destined for. The death and resurrection, because that is where he conquered sin and death once and for all. The the resurrection proved that he was who he claimed to be. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 4. He says, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. That's the importance of the resurrection. We know that he, he was who he claimed to be. He was sinless. He was a sacrifice for our sins. He was the Son of God. We know all that's true because God raised him from the dead. 
Now, understand here that Jesus is not saying that these skeptics and these critics and these opponents, these religious teachers and leaders that were standing before him and rejecting him, he's not saying that they're going to get on their knees and believe when they see him crucified and hear of his resurrection. We know that they didn't. Matter of fact, remember when he was telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he has Abraham saying in that story, he says, even if they, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So even the resurrection won't change a spiritually dead heart. An unbeliever will reject the truth no matter how profound the evidence for who Christ is and what he came to do. What he is saying here is that one day, he's pointing to that day when he would come again. He didn't come for judgment the first time. He came to save his people. He will come again another time and he will come for judgment. And he's saying here, to his critics, to his opponents, to those who are rejecting him and who will continue to reject him even after the resurrection, he's saying one day every eye will see. And he's talking about physical eyes. One day every eye will see and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and say, Jesus is Lord of all. That's going to come. As a matter of fact, John later is given in, in all the... the the visions that he has given in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John has given a a horrific view of what that day is going to look like for those who have rejected Christ. Let me pick up the reading in chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? They'll cry in vain for the mountains to fall upon, to hide them from Christ when he appears that they might escape his judgment, but there will be no hope for that. Jesus stood before them that day, and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Is there anyone here this morning who's walking in darkness right now? You've heard all your life about Jesus Christ, but either you rejected that testimony or you've lived as though it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Are you tired of walking in the darkness? Do you have a longing for the light? How does a sinner born in darkness and alienation from God and, and, and with a great and deep love for sin ever come to see Jesus Christ for who he claimed to be, the light of the world? Well, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Unless a man is born again, unless he's born from above, He cannot see the kingdom of God. God must give you the gift of faith. God must give you spiritual eyesight because we're born spiritually dead and spiritually blind. God must give you that spiritual gift of the ability to see Christ for who he is and to receive him. Now, if 
you're here and you're walking in darkness and you're loving the darkness and you're either scoffing at this message or you're dismissing it. It doesn't get, either fill you with fear of judgment or any hope of the truth of it. Then there's nothing I can say or any one of us here can say to convince you that this is true. But I pray that as you hear this message of who Christ is based on the word, that you are fearful of the judgment that's to come. And you are, there's a spark of hope within you that Christ can deliver you from that darkness. And if, you, if that's real, if that's really happening in your soul, then call out to Christ. He is the light of the world. He will take that gift of faith that God has given to you, that the Spirit is wrestling with your soul to, to give to you, and He will clarify your view more and more and more and lead you more and more into light. And that is real life. Let me close with, again, going back to John chapter 1, because John in in chapter 1 really summarizes everything that he says here in chapter 8. I'll read to you again a little farther down in John chapter 1, picking up the reading in verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, the light has come into the world. Thank you for everyone here. I speak for everyone here who by your grace has been given the precious gift of spiritual sight of being given a new heart and new eyes and new ears and a new mind and a new, new ability to see what is true in the spiritual realm. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. We didn't deserve it any more than anyone else in the world. But you chose us. You gave us birth from above. You opened our eyes to see Christ, and he is so glorious. He is the reflection of your glory. Thank you for filling us for that, with that vision of who he is for the love in our hearts you've given for him. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that's just awakening to that right now, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen that faith, that you would reveal Christ to them more and more, that you would dispel the darkness that has enslaved them, that has left them empty, left them broken. Fill them with the light of Christ, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.